around her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nursed for 1,260 days. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Once again, seek our God in prayer. Our Father, we do ask that you would pull back the veil, so that we would see things unseen as they are revealed in your word. We ask for your spirit's illumination in this, and we pray that Christ would be exalted in our hearts and in the world. We pray that the preaching of your word and of the gospel would be unto that end. In Jesus' name we ask. think of this time of year, you think of the birth of Christ, born in a manger. You may think of animals that surrounded the manger, though we're not told explicitly so that there were angels present. Yet, because Jesus was laid in a manger, it's uh, a conclusion that we might draw. But have you ever looked closely at the birth of Christ? And have you noticed another kind of animal present at the manger. 
Have you ever looked closely and noticed at the foot of the manger next to Mary that there's a viper? Have you ever looked and, and seen on the ledge of the manger that there's a scorpion with its tail poised and ready to strike? Have you ever noticed that there is a seven-headed dragon lurking in the shadows, waiting for the birth of his child. In Revelation, we have a nativity account, an account of Christ's birth. Normally we think of the account of Christ's birth as it appears in the, the Gospels, where we have the, the familiar scene of a manger and shepherds. Yet in Revelation, we have a, a different perspective. We have, as it were, a, a veil that has been pulled back so that you can see what's going on in the invisible realm when Christ comes into the world. Sort of like vertical blinds that you might have at home in front of a sliding glass door. If you open those blinds slightly to a 45 degree angle and you stand on one side of the room, you can't see anything outside. It's, it's just a wall and all that you can see is the room that's immediately around you. Then if you walk across to the other side of the room, you look out, and all of a sudden you can see clearly what lies beyond the wall. In a way, that's, that's the sort of book Revelation is. It, it pulls back the veil. It, it brings you to the other side of the room so that you can gain a perspective into invisible things. In the Nicene Creed this morning, we confess that we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And what we confess there when we talk about that God is the maker of things invisible, that's not referring to the molecules and subatomic particles that are too small for the naked eye. That's all part of the visible realm. The invisible realm is the invisible heavens, that place inhabited by angels and demons various creatures that we don't see with our physical eyes. And at Christ's birth, we find that the invisible realm is teeming with activity because Jesus Christ has been born into the world. As we consider the birth of our Lord as it's recorded for us here in Revelation chapter 12, we'll, we'll consider it in this light that it is an account of the seed of the woman who has come to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. As promised by God in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman has come, finally, at long last, to crush the dragon's head. So as we look at our text, let's take up this theme under three points. First, we'll look at the woman. Secondly, we'll look at the dragon. And then thirdly, we'll look at the child. We'll look at this great conflict that is underway. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, we find the woman. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. 
and read Revelation, we might grow frustrated with all of the symbolic language. Who is this woman? What does it represent? What does it mean that she's wearing the sun? What does it mean that she has a crown of 12 stars? But to understand this language, we need to be steeped in the Old Testament. And so think, where in the Old Testament have you seen a sun, a moon, and say 11 or 12 stars? Perhaps what comes to mind is Joseph's dream with his brothers, where the sun and the moon and his 11 brothers, particular stars, bow down to him. I think that gives us a good reference point for understanding who is this woman? So brilliantly clothed, so radiant, so glorious. When you think of God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 heads of Israel, those Jacob and his family, from whom Israel descended. And so we would be at a good starting point to understand that this this woman speaks of the people of God. Especially during her pregnancy that refers to the people of God under the Old Testament. And then postpartum, after she gives birth to the child, that we see a depiction of God's people in the present time under the New Testament. And look at how this woman is dressed. She is clothed with the sun in verse 1. Picture of a a bright radiance uh, emanating from this woman. We can think of the bright dresses that, that women sometimes wear, especially on their wedding day. If you've been to a wedding, uh, particularly an outdoor wedding, you, you can perhaps picture a bride coming down the aisle, and if the sun is catching the dress just right, there's, there's a, a radiance, there's, there's literally a splendor that comes off the dress as the bride, an image of the church, comes down the aisle. Can you imagine being at a wedding where the bride comes down the aisle and it's, it's quite literally shining with the luminosity of the sun? Everybody would turn their eyes away and, and be blinded if they tried to look at her. And yet this is the description of the woman, just radiating the, the glory and brilliancy of the sun. She stands on the moon. The moon is her pedestal. She has heavenly dominion, not only over the earth, but also over the celestial realm. Sign of her authority that she reigns as a queen. And there's also other celestial imagery, her crown of 12 stars. And God promised to Abraham that his offspring would be as the stars of heaven. There's an old interpretation which, which uh, should be seriously considered. That that promise is not only quantitative, but also qualitative. That God, in promising to Abraham that his offspring would be as the stars of heaven, promises not only to multiply his offspring so that they are as numerous as the stars of heaven, but that the sons of Abraham, the creatures of the dust, will be exalted and elevated to have a place among the heavenly host. As the writer to the Hebrews says, that it's the, not to the angels 
but to a man that God has subjected the world to come. That the offspring of Abraham will be elevated to this place of status and glory among the angels, among the angelic hosts, among the stars of heaven, where they reign upon the earth. here depiction of the people of God in all of their celestial glory. The seed of Abraham made as the stars of heaven, coming to a place of ruling dominion, standing upon the moon, shining with the brilliance of the sun. That this has always been God's project with humanity. that he has made humanity to rule as royal kings on the earth and to serve as holy priests. We catch a glimpse of that here. That because of mankind's sin, this this was discarded. There was a stripping of the glory. Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden. They took off the royal robes of their righteousness and they found that they were naked and they were ashamed. They found that they were sent into exile. And yet in Christ, with the birth of Christ, God's purposes for humanity are being reclaimed. The royalty of the church is not like the royalty of the king of England, King Charles III, is king because his mother was queen. Royalty flows from mother to son in that case, but here it's the reverse. The royalty flows backwards. It's because this woman has a child who sits on the throne of God, but she is accounted as royalty, that she wears the celestial crown, that she reigns. Because she has a son who reigns, who brings back the purposes of God for mankind. When you think of the church, how do you think of it? You read about the church in the Old Testament, you see it as this entity that is crowned with glory and honor when you look at your brothers and sisters around you. When you look into your own heart, do you see a people that shines with the radiance and brilliancy of the sun that is marked out for reigning in the cosmos in the age to come? It's not something that that strikes our our eyes immediately, apparently. We need this, this perspective beyond the veil, this perspective from the other side of the room where we see beyond the blind. God has a purpose for mankind to restore mankind as a royal priesthood that will reign on the earth. This outcome is secured by Christ. What will that reigning look like? We don't know. In all of its detail, what will it be like to see Christ face to face? We don't know because he hasn't yet appeared. What will we be doing when he appears? We don't know because he hasn't yet appeared. 
But we are told in God's church that this is what God's purpose for mankind is. And that this comes to be restored with the birth of Christ. Jewish woman is arrayed in celestial and heavenly glory, reigning. But she's also pregnant. She's also heavy with child. She's having a difficult time with it. And in this we can understand the history of God's people from Eve until now. That the whole Old Testament can be characterized as a 4,000 year long pregnancy or however millennia you want to reckon from Eve until Mary. It is millennia after millennia of women laboring to bring forth the promised seed. You think of Eve seeking to bring forth the promised seed. She's in Abel and Abel is slain by the seed of the serpent and Cain. You can think of the various women who were barren in Genesis who desired to bring forth children, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. You can think of the Israelite women in Egypt laboring to bring forth their children and yet as Pharaoh sought to put those male children to death. You can think of David looking for a son to sit on his throne. All of that. Hundreds of pregnancies and thousands of years of waiting at last come to an end in Mary's pregnancy. That at last there is a pregnancy that will bring forth the seed who will finally crush the dragon's head. And so this woman the saints of old waited and waited and waited for the birth of this child. You know, they're not the only ones who are waiting. Somebody else has been waiting too. Very eagerly, a dragon has been waiting, lurking, anticipating the birth of this child so that he might devour it. Consider verses 3 and 4. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, that when she gave birth he might devour her child. Here we have the seed of the serpent, serpent himself, the dragon, continuing to wage that war against God's holy seed that has been waged in various manifestations throughout history, but now comes to a climactic manifestation in the birth of Christ. As Pharaoh sought to kill the, the children of Israel, so Herod now, in the time of Jesus, seeks to put to death the king that will bring and inaugurate Christ, the, God's final reign on the earth. He seeks to kill any, any usurper to the throne, and yet behind that is not just a mere, mere political stratagem, but it's even Satan himself trying to undo the very purposes of God for humanity. 
dragon waits and lurks, ready to devour the child when it is born. The dragon has seven heads. Number seven in Revelation is a frequent number, and it alludes to the fullness of something, the completion of something, the totality of something. We have the seven spirits, the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, seven attributes that are ascribed to Christ, power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And now you have the seven heads of this dragon. Seven represents fullness and totality. This dragon is the fullness and the totality of opposition to God's royal reign. This dragon wears seven diadems. The diadem is a symbol of authority. The dragon is presenting itself in an attempt to usurp all authority, to usurp a sevenfold authority. As he appears to do so, he is formidable. He has ten horns, a sign of strength and power, something that can crush or gore. In English, we have the expression that if you mess with the bull, you get the horns, a sign of, of the power and the strength of the animal. And here is a dragon with ten of them. seems as though this dragon might prevail. It seems as though this dragon might thwart the purposes of God. Again, throughout the Old Testament, this seed of the serpent opposes God's people, seeks their death, seeks the death of their children. And now as Christ comes, Herod seeks to put Jesus to death. And at the cross, the serpent also seeks the death consider such a fearsome enemy, it may become disheartening. Do you feel hopeless when you think about the advancement of Christ's kingdom? Do you think, as you look at the world around you, that Satan's kingdom is just too dark? It just has too much of a foothold. the gospel really advance here? Can Satan's kingdom really be overthrown in this place or in this heart? Doesn't it appear that his horns are too strong? Doesn't it appear that his heads are too many? It's a text like this that reminds us that Jesus came to crush the serpent's head if the serpent has seven heads, so many the more to crush. So many the more to grind underfoot. Now while this dragon appears formidable, though it appears that he will have the victory, that he will gain his purposes in destroying this child, there is divine intervention. There's a God who has ordained for this child to rule the nation. The dragon will not thwart that purpose. 
Now consider thirdly this trial. Verses 5 and 6. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. At last, the child has been born. At last, the one who wields the iron scepter has come. And to him shall be the subjection and the obedience of the nations. This one was caught up to the throne of God in his ascension, and from there he carries out his royal reign against the serpent. How does he carry out this royal reign? We read of an iron scepter. An iron scepter because it's meant for smashing. In Psalm 2, the Son of God is promised that he will break the nations in pieces like a potter's vessel. That he will rule them with a rod of iron. That the nations that will not submit to him, that he will destroy. We don't have a, a rod here of, of gold, which though it would speak of, of royalty and, and preciousness, that gold as a soft metal isn't great for ruling and destroying and smashing. Instead, an iron scepter that will bring into subjection the nations. And yet consider also that this iron scepter with which he will shepherd the nations is turned to their good and their benefit. Consider that if our text speaks of this child shepherding the nations with an iron rod, what it means to consider those nations as part of his flock. And the protection that comes from having a shepherd who has an iron fist, of being a citizen of a king who wields his iron scepter on behalf of his people against their enemies. A king who wields an iron scepter even against the dragon. one has come to destroy the works of Satan. And so while he will call to account every nation that will not submit to his royal reign, to every nation that says, we will not have this man to rule over us, yet also for those who do acknowledge that scepter, for those who do acknowledge the kingship of Christ, it's for their good and for their protection that he then reigns. Jesus, in ruling, has come to destroy the works of the devil in the way that he carries out that kingly reign is through plundering Satan. That is to say, through binding the strong man, through tying him up and taking that which he has control over, not least of which is the nations. So Jesus, as one who comes wielding a rod of iron, comes to bind Satan to Find the strong man and to take the nations as his own possession as he inherits the earth. As he takes dominion 
as he as the foremost expression of humanity, the God-man, receives as his inheritance and possession all the nations of the earth as, as being part of his dominion. Here he is returning back. He binds and touches Satan's head through forgiveness and pardon that he announces to the nations that he strips Satan of his former realm and embraces the kingdom of heaven. And consider how this is good news. When you consider all the woe that Satan's kingdom has wrought on the earth. Take any country, any continent, any country, and read about its history. And what do you find? But a sordid affair of wicked human beings committing indecency. Whether that's our country, whether that's another country. Reading recently about Leopold II and his involvement in the Congo, where he would cut off limbs, or how his uh, police would cut off limbs to help ensure that rubber quotas were met. Take any country, take any little building, you find so much woe, so much sinfulness, so much darkness among humanity. When you consider all of the children who wish that they had two parents in the home, but who don't because of unfaithfulness or because of immorality, when you consider a news report about a child that suffocated in the seat of a car and the parent forgot, read the homicide reports. Or when you read about teenagers who struck and killed another driver. When you read about the traffic and sale of gold. And when you consider your own flesh that you take with you wherever you go that presents you with this enemy enticing you. Do you not rejoice at what the Apostle elsewhere writes, that for this reason the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil? Do you not rejoice to consider that at last, finally, the King has come? That finally, he is taking what is his by right? That finally, he is reclaiming the nations? That finally, he is bringing God's rule upon the earth? so that righteousness will prevail? Do you not rejoice that he does this through reconciling his enemies to himself, that he subdues them, that he takes away the claim of the, 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 the accusations that the devil would make against them, that he forgives and that he pardons them, and that he implants his spirit within them so that they might live and become fit to bear fully the image of God, uh, the image of God at Christ's return. Do not rejoice that the seed of the woman 
are finally enjoined to crush the serpent's head, to destroy all the works of Satan, to erase every vestige of Satan's presence and corrupting power within the creation, so that in the new heavens and the new earth there will be no trace, no mark that has been left. There will only be perfect justice. Do not rejoice that this child has been caught up into heaven, for he holds in his hand an iron scepter with which to shepherd the nations. Now where does that leave us in the present? In the postpartum section of this passage. church, the woman is in the wilderness. She is afflicted and assaulted by Satan, but she has a place prepared for her by God. 1,260 days, 180 weeks, 42 months, three and a half years. A span of seven years cut in half. A span of seven years interrupted. But the affliction of the church she is oppressed and attacked by this dragon will all of a sudden be interrupted when Christ appears at his second advent. And until then, we are sustained and prepared for, or we have a place prepared for us by God. And there is for us a warning between the advent of Christ, between his birth and between his second coming. There's a Satan would seek to undo us, that he would seek to attack the woman, to destroy her, to make war against her offspring, and that this may take various manifestations, that it may be that at times there will be outward, external persecution and opposition. Other times this craftiness will manifest itself in the coming of false teachers. Satan would delight to see the doors of a gospel-preaching church closed, but he would just as much delight to see it filled with false teachers, as one theologian has stated. That uh, of the false gospel that endangers the church in our time is that a God without wrath about men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. That Satan seeks to afflict the church, to quiet the church, to prevent the church from progressing towards the end for which God has created her. And she will appear with her husband, with the child whom she bore, in glory, in honor, reigning over the world in the age to come. So let us be on our guard against this crafty serpent. Let us always seek to bring ourselves under the subjection and the rule and reign of the child who has been born to be king. And let us rejoice that this child is indeed the one who crushes us.